Investment Management Operations is brought to you by Intelligo. Intelligo is the premier due diligence platform delivering innovative pre-investment background checks and continuous subject monitoring for some of the most sophisticated asset allocators. Their individual and company background check reports blend the critical discernment of human experts with cutting-edge AI, ensuring you receive the most thorough and rapid insights. Groups like Common Fund, Adam Street Partners, Felicitas Global Partners, and past Capital Allocators guests Hamilton Lane, AIM13, and NEPC leverage Intelligo to mitigate risk and enhance their operational due diligence process. Visit Intelligo.ai to learn more. Hello. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Investment Management Operations. This show explores the inner workings of the most sophisticated institutions in the industry. Through conversations with executives across operations, compliance, legal, and finance, you'll hear how key operating partners run their businesses in an ever-changing and complex investment landscape. You can join our mailing list and access Capital Allocators content at CapitalAllocators.com. I'm Scott McDonald, and I'm your host. My guest on today's show is Danielle Roseman. Danielle is a managing director and co-head of Lazard Family Office Services, a multifamily office that started managing capital for some of the world's most sophisticated families over 175 years ago. She joined Lazard in 2023 following the acquisition of Truvo Partners, Danielle started her career at Goldman Sachs, where she worked on the mortgage desk during the great financial crisis. If you work with family offices or want to learn more about it, this is the episode. Danielle goes deep on how to provide operational value to families, the power of operational support as a skill set, and how the next generation of clients is changing the client service engagement model. Danielle riffs on their tech stack, data consumption trends, family governance, tracking non-traditional assets like art, and the complexity of tracking documentation of family assets. Please enjoy my conversation with Danielle Roseman. Danielle, thanks for the time today. Thank you for having me, Scott. I'm excited to talk about all things family offices. What I love to kick off is really just a backdrop on your background and how you found yourself in the seat today at Lazard. So we have to go a little bit further back than I'd like to admit. I started my career very luckily at Goldman Sachs as part of their analyst program. I started in the summer of 2007. And so that was probably one of the largest, if not the largest analyst programs that Goldman had definitely at that time before the market crisis. And so I was listening to Lauren's podcast with you last night, and I couldn't have agreed with her feelings more about the benefits of starting with a structured analyst program. There's a fundamental goal of learning how to be a professional that Goldman provided. In starting my career with a culture of training, mentorship, personal development, and most importantly, learning how to work. They also taught me about the importance of receiving feedback and utilizing it as a catalyst for growth. So I've always been a big cheerleader for my experience at Goldman that they gave me in my early 20s. I can say this now that I was very fortunate to have been placed on the mortgage middle office desk in 2007 
I don't know if I felt that way when I started my career. It's a very humbling experience to start your career in a crisis, especially within operations. There was a crisis in 2008, is that what you're saying? Uh, you know, just in, in case you ever space. read the history books in the mortgage space, it was fundamental shift, I think, within what we do as an operations manager. It taught me really two learning lessons there where the first is cash is king and learning where cash is, where it's going, how it's being held, who's using it, where did it go, I think is fundamental to operations as a business and understanding your portfolio. And the second and more broad base is that operations is not what's considered in the past as this traditional back office executionary role. For business to be successful, it is mission critical. And I think a lot of that perspective changed in 2008. I think firms realized that the most valuable component to a business wasn't necessarily just a good trade or a good deal. It was your reputation. And if you can't be trusted because you don't have proper controls, your reputation is never going to be able to be successful, no matter how good you're able to execute a trade. Starting there and learning about what happens when controls are misaligned, I think was an incredible learning lesson. At a firm like that, you have a situation where it's such a large organization. You come in, you're doing something very narrow. What did Goldman do differently to learn about all those things about where the money goes that's outside maybe of your lens? I think there was, as an institution, a lot of cross-training. As an organization that large, they were very focused on hiring individuals of talent and keeping them at the firm. They were not focused on keeping a person within their role. So there was a lot of opportunity to train with other teams, other divisions. If you were a person that they felt could grow as part of their culture, they did everything they could to give you opportunities where you thought you'd want to grow. Because the truth is you were placed on a team. I had no control over being on the mortgage desk. That's just where I landed. And so as you're doing that discovery and meeting with individuals and trying to build mentorships, that goal of staying within the nucleus of Goldman was something that they really cultivated. And in 2010, part of that outreach was that they were really focused on the growth of their asset management division, which I think at the time had been maybe more sleepy on their side prior to that. 2010 is when they really saw the value of this fiduciary side of the business, these fixed fees, things that maybe weren't as volatile as they were seeing on the broker-dealer side. And that's when I got the opportunity to move over to the asset management side of the business. So I have to ask, what was it like being in the middle of a crisis at what some may say ground zero of where it all began? I was very fortunate in being naive. I hadn't seen all the upside. I had just come in and was maybe a couple months. Mortgage just was hit first. The rates, repos, we were hit first. And so when we started to see the challenges in the marketplace and we started to see the pushback from clients and the relationships changing, I think we really sat back and said, what is our responsibility and it is different than maybe what we felt it was as a broker dealer. There was this lens of, well, where are you a fiduciary and where are you not a fiduciary, which was an open question mark. We went through a very large scale audit from the SEC about our controls. One of the things I got to work on at a very young age was this 
600-page manual of how we process mortgage bonds and how we process TBA transactions and all these really intricate ways that were operationally challenging within the space and get that evaluated by the SEC. They sat next to you and watched you click the button. And if the manual didn't look like what you clicked, there was a real repercussion for that. And so that was going to the very beginning of what are your controls? What are you doing to prevent reputational risk? What are you doing to make sure that what you think is trying to be achieved is actually getting done? That was a critical learning lesson for me of making sure what we say we're doing, we're actually doing. And Goldman was a great place to do that. And how long were you at Goldman? In total, I was there for over six years. And so I had two roles within that, both within fixed income. And for me, my experience was that it was a great place for your 20s. I felt like they really were focused on building individuals and educating them and trying to make them into real working professionals. There was definitely high intensity culture as one thinks of when they think of Goldman Sachs. But there was a lot of opportunity. And most of my peers within my analyst class would be able to migrate within the firm to new opportunities, depending on where their interests lied, which I really valued. And what made you decide to leave? I think that a lot of times at a bigger organization, you're only as strong as your advocate because it's easy to get lost. And I was at a weird influx age. I was not as old and senior as I might have thought I was, but I had some experience under my belt. And so it's a real interesting age they find with these senior level associates, junior level vice president roles, where you finally reach the school of vice president, but you're not quite senior enough to really effectuate change. And I really wanted to be able to effectuate change. And so my secondary role was working on a chief operating officer team. And I wanted to take that business management mindset of operations and apply it to a smaller firm. And when I got the opportunity to interview at Roundtable Investment Partners at that time, which is the firm I'm still at 10 years later with a few name changes in between, I really could not have been more excited because I was going to be the first and only operations professional. I could design the role myself and I could have that balance of both expertise, but also doing the hard work and getting my hands a little dirty. Maybe walk us through the evolution of Roundtable to Lazard. It's been a lot of changes. And I think that that works well with the multifamily space. When I joined Roundtable, we were really an investment firm. That was our focus for clients. We were hired to be an OCIO platform for families that was based around investing like an endowment. We had a very heavy investment footprint. My role was really brought in just to service the investment team to build a data warehouse with the technology group in order to provide more dynamic investment reporting that in turn could also be used for client reporting. And Roundtable had existed in 2006. So they had already experienced the market shortfalls. They had gone through a lot of evolution in terms of their investment structure, but they still were primarily an OCIO firm. When I joined along that time, was a lot of discussions from clients of saying to us, we really like what you're doing for us in this sector, but we already have a concentrated portfolio here, or we have positions in ABC. Can you combine that information with what you're doing to help us think about 
our family changes, our spending needs, cash is king. Where's our cash at? Where can our cash grow? And then it really evolved. We're intellectually curious firm for the better and worse of us. And so they would come to us and be like, well, where should we get a mortgage? And we were like, well, that's a really interesting question. Let's explore it. And over time, we started to realize that the families were really utilizing us for a much more broad mandate than just our investment skills. And they really wanted to have this investment portfolio managed alongside their general family needs. And so we focused and shifted ourselves from just providing these investment services to being more of this quarterback or nucleus for the family of helping them make a lot of these decisions that may not fall within the pure investment portfolio, but affect the investment portfolio and affect the investment decisions because all of it comes into play, estate planning, tax planning, cash flow management, forecasting, it all plays a role within the family. It can't just be this one piece of the pie that works by itself. Over time, as we were thinking about it, we really started to build out this business. And in conjunction with the retirement of our initial founders in 2019, we spun out our registered investment advisor and rebranded ourselves to Truvo Partners, which is a made-up word. Uh, true voice. We wanted to be the true voice for our families in 2019 and then serviced our clients until now we are Lazard Family Office Partners until the acquisition that occurred in Q1 of 2023. So when you think about the range of services, a lot of family office groups, they have a lane. Are you guys doing stem to stern or are you doing an all holistic approach to that? I think what was great about Lazard and ourselves and this merger is that Lazard really wasn't heavily focused in the wealth management space or the family land space, but they wanted to be. They didn't have a high focus on the private space, but they want to be. They want to be working with these families. They have a very large investment bank. They are creating a lot of these families, and they wanted to retain those relationships as part of what they've built as a really strong asset management platform. And so the synergies there were really nice. And what's been great about that evolution has also been that they are not telling us how to conduct and you are now only able to provide these services or you are only able to give your clients Lazard product. There is none of that. There is no, this is what you're putting in your client's portfolios, or now you have to go and only provide these services and you can't work with JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs for your clients if they need lending or if they want to use those firms in conjunction with you. There is no mandate in terms of this now is Lazard and you have to be within the confines of Lazard. We are still working with all of our families in the exact same construct. And so that has been a really value additive proposition. It's, I think, why all of our families have stayed on with us and all of the people of the firm have stayed on with us as well as we've migrated into the organization. And Lazard has a long history. How old is Lazard? 175 years this year. And so plugging into that and being dynamic and creating your own footprint, what do you insource versus outsource in terms of services? We had this debate a lot as we were coming to Lazard about what makes sense for us to utilize, what does Lazard have in tow, what do we think is value additive? And so 
The great thing about Lazard is that they have a very strong network across the marketplace. They have a very strong sales force. They have a very strong relationship management team that we think will help bring in longer-term relationships within the family office space. And it's another offering for them to consider, especially on our hedge funds or private vehicles. But in terms of insourcing and outsourcing, Lazard Asset Management had more traditional-based products, bond, mutual funds, equities. And so they tend to have historically come from an outsource model, which makes sense for a field that has had a lot of technology innovation for over 30 years, where I would say the family land space and the alternative space has had a technology innovation for the last five to 10 years. The ease of use of outsourcing our data or outsourcing our operational processes, our client support, I think that is a constant debate that I have in my mind. Outsourcing works really well for repeatable institutional workflows and processes. And I'd love to meet a family office, a multifamily office where each family is the same, that has the same asset allocation, the same structure, same entity, same reporting, same client engagement. I'd love to meet them. I'd ask how they found those families. It's just not the engagement we have with our families. And being a white glove service model, we just feel like keeping our staff in-house to ensure that we have time and responses and manage flexibility and being dynamic. We think that that's actually our selling point. We do not view our traditional operations team as a back office function. We do not view our technology initiatives as a back office function. That is first and foremost part of what we sell to clients. And so in that mindset, keeping things in-house while utilizing different technology resources externally has really been our balancing act. And what does that tech stack look like for you guys? It is large. (laughs) There is a lot going on in the alt space and equally still a lot of PDF files. So our tech stack is comprised of a few different technologies. We live and breathe within Solovis, which is our portfolio management and data warehouse tool. So that was something we actually initiated back in 2015. That was the thing that I was first and foremost brought in to Roundtable to build out. And so that is where everything lives when it comes to our investment data. And I mean everything. Every asset a client owns, if it's a house, if it's a loan, if it's a mortgage, it all lives there. And then anything within the pure investment portfolio where we do not have daily information is a requirement from our chief investment officer to get the best possible data available. So she wants to look at her portfolio on August 15th and have an approximation of where that portfolio is on August 15th. Well, we have hedge funds, we have private equity, we have things that do not have data points alongside our custodial data. And so that's where Solovis has really added value to us in terms of proxying and benchmarks and exposures. That was the initial mandate. So are you actually plugging in more real assets like art, cars, wine? At what point does that tail off? We have this concept that we like to use with clients. We have reporting on the investment portfolio, and then we do reporting on what's considered a balance sheet. We like to focus on the investment portfolio because as I tell them, I manage a bunch of investment nerds. And so that's where their minds typically go. But everything to a family is part of the portfolio, and they need to understand where all their assets lie, where are their liabilities, because we'll help them manage those as well. If they have loans, if they have liabilities, if they have corporations. Now, we also use another system called Mastro, and Mastro 
plays a role in family space for us, that is more of a function of those entity mapping requirements for a family along with documentation management. And so if you have a piece of property or if you have an artwork of value, where does all that documentation live? There is a constant communication between third-party intermediaries and ourselves, and it all tends to live in email. It has to live in a system that's easily accessible and that families understand what their entire structure is, and then also that we can find as a resource all of that information for them quickly and seamlessly. And so Solovis will be the conduit for all the investment and the valuation piece of that pie. And then we also mirror that with Masho to have a better outlook on how ownership plays, what are the documentations, KYC, AML information, and some of the things that are more CRM-oriented for families. What's the distinction between Mastro and Solovis? So where's the bright line? There are some components that are natural competitors between the two systems. Mastro also provides performance reporting. Mastro also has platform for private equity. They have a client engagement portal. That's not really something that Solovis was ever focused on. Solovis is an internal tool that does a great job at aggregating data. They are great at thinking about exposures and analysis and helping mix and match information, both for our clients and frankly, for us as a business, as we're reporting now into Lazard and other constructs where they're not the book of record, but for us internally, they serve as a book of record on those values. So Lovis has limitations on this relationship management piece in terms of documentation vaulting. What does the estate look like? Who owns what? Who are the beneficiaries? Who's paying the tax? Where did the cash go? How did it go? How we think about gifting. Again, to your point, what about if you own a vineyard? What if you own cryptocurrency? What if you own a piece of artwork? Where does that artwork live? You might have loaned it to an institution. All of that family-oriented information is very easily fit within Mastro. So a lot better than trying to figure out by email where that piece of art is located. That's the constant dilemma because when you're small or smaller, very different experience than the mandate that a Lazard has come to us saying, well, what happens if you're 35 billion assets under management, if you're 50 billion assets under management and you have 100 families or 200 families. And so that's where it's too easy. It's like Excel. It's so easy to live in Excel. It's so nice. Everyone's used to it, but it's just not long-term if somebody leaves and if you grow. And so that's kind of what we're focused on that build out. And we also like that families and intermediaries can utilize it too. So if families want to know where their documents are and families want to understand as they're thinking about their next generation, how to give that information to their children, it lives somewhere, but the organization of it is a workflow. It's a skill set. Another tool in our stack is Canoe Intelligence. We have a lot of third-party managers. We are a heavy limited partner and we have been with our managers since 2006. We are with them through many different series, many different funds. So when you have a client with 30 entities, that can look like a multitude of private investments, depending on how we've allocated. And so working in ways to streamline that information and have that data be organized has helped grow us in terms of some of the ways we try to institutionalize our workflows. And what does Canoe do for you? So Canoe is a text recognition software 
if you live in the land of hedge funds and private equity, you live in the land of PDF files. It is a phenomenon that I really didn't anticipate when I came over to Roundtable that has not really shifted to the state in 2023. So it's been 10 years. Every manager will send you their valuation statements, their capital call distribution statements differently. There is the goal of templating from the ILPA statements, but the bulk of managers still send this information all different varies and forms and all different timelines. And Canoe helps alleviate some of the manual burden of just that input. Their goal is to use technology to read those files and produce that data in an extract that is easy to communicate to other third-party systems. The next piece of the pie with Canoe is this concept of Canoe Connect, which is APIs that we're going to be utilizing where Canoe will have the ability to automatically pull those documentation from fund administrator portals and other third-party portals directly into their warehouse, automatically track what you have received versus what you were expecting to receive, automatically relabel those documents, which is an operational pain point that nobody thinks about, but does take up time. And really ensuring you have a vault of all of this data when if at our size for the last 15 years is really tremendous. I mean, we live in PDF files for our clients. It's a small touch point. We don't go to clients and let them know we have this great PDF tool, but it will be a huge time saver. And the clients will see that value when they have more availability from us on more thoughtful work, which we're very excited about. What about your team in the Division of Labor, I'd love to get a backdrop on how you actually get your arms around all these moving pieces. It was trial by fire. We had a lot of different structures at the beginning of Roundtable in trying to figure out who owned what responsibility and hoping to service a client and who had what skill set. And we have built ourselves around this concept of a pod. We're first and foremost built around the family. So every family has a pod. That pod is usually comprised of three individuals. There's the client relationship manager, who's the responsible party for making sure information and reporting and everything gets out to clients and has that communication piece. There's an investment individual who's looking at the portfolio on a consistent basis, working with the client person to make investment decisions, targets, asset allocation. And then lastly, we have my team, which is the Lazard family office services role, And we're responsible for the execution of all of those items or bulk of those items. And so we view ourselves as that daily support person, but a part of that client pod. We have to make sure that we intimately understand all of those other goals, even if we're not able to speak in detail to the investment goal or the client goal, but that we understand what is going on within the client portfolio to be able to execute that work as efficiently and quickly and thoughtfully as possible. And the reason we built ourselves out that way is that we view operational support as a skill set. Because we're agnostic and we work with clients who have different accountants, different custodial relationships, different estate planners, we view processing information as an important skill set that needs to be done accurately. And if you're someone who's main focus and goal is to be on the sales side or to work with clients and be client engaging and client facing, that same skill may not always translate to making sure the subscription documents filled out properly so that the tax is not inappropriate when you get a K-1. Both of those are two different skill sets. They're both critically important to servicing the client. So that's our main structure. And then going into what my team tends to look like is that we try to hire someone straight out of college, typically. 
there's something that I find exciting about hiring someone where it's their first role. There's an energy and an eagerness to learn that we think really coincides with this position as you're learning about families from the bottom up. Their daily job is to support two to four families within the organization, and they'll manage the day-to-day work of pure operations, reconciling cash flow, processing transactions, facilitating capital calls, producing reporting, but they also understand and are subject matter experts on the client's goals. So if they're working alongside the client team on a new mortgage or a new loan or a line of credit, they'll be working very much hand in hand for making sure that what's being felt on the client side is also being executed from the operation side. How do you think about the difference between like working with a taxable versus tax exempt institution? Does that vary? A lot of our clients tend to come to us with both taxable entities and foundations. We work with our clients pretty in depth to better understand what the goals of those foundations are, what they're spending, what they're gifting, what their long-term horizons are, and how we think about investing. There's also the implication of onshore investing, offshore investing, thinking about the structuring of the type of vehicles that we're investing in. We are built off of foundations. Our chief investment officer lived in foundation land. She came from Yale's foundation. She worked at the New York Public Library. So she really understands the goals of a foundation from an investment standpoint. And so the investment piece in terms of how we allocate may not differ, but thinking about the different approaches is, is a constant discussion and the different needs. It's very different in terms of what the long-term objectives tend to be. How do you collaborate with the investment team given the breadth of client base and variety? Especially in this space, more so I think than in the traditional security space, it is a constant engagement with the investment team, a constant workflow question of a client came to us and said, we now want to own XYZ in the portfolio. What is the impact and how will that affect your reporting? We just had a call where we have a new manager and there's an opco piece and there's a traditional private equity piece. And how do we want to report that? And how does the investment team want to look at it versus what the client team wants to show versus what can our systems do? So we are constantly in discussions with our investment team in making sure that what they're looking to achieve is both business oriented that can actually get executed, but also that we make sure that we're producing material that's useful for them. Because it's very easy to produce material that is useful for the ops team, but that doesn't mean that it always translates over visually and digestively to an investment team. And I think that that's really important to get their feedback and make sure you're able to address their questions. If they look at something and say, you know what, you built a workflow that's going to take me 10 steps, it's just not going to happen. And how do we find a solution that gets us to five steps? It might not get us to one step, but how do we find a compromise? And we're very collaborative together. You have a model that is very high touch, white glove, and varying needs. And how do you scale that business? A lot of trial and error. And I think that's a big question we ask ourselves of where can we be institutional and where do we have to give ourselves and our clients the appropriate level of flexibility? And we approach it where we think that there's really a differentiator. So We think our investments are a differentiator. We have a multitude of managers, a multitude of investments. We take on client investments. We're not for sellers. We love to look at their portfolio, understand where they've been, where they're going. 
And so from that standpoint, we're always going to make sure that we are taking on, again, an intellectual curiosity and a bit of an investment nerd attitude. And where we can streamline is that we try to work with the clients from day one and producing reporting and objectives that they really need and what they want to see, and also equally show them what we have today and what's already been automated through our infrastructure so they understand how to achieve their goals, maybe through some of the things we've already built in-house. But the truth is a lot of times when you're working with families, you have to be dynamic. And so we're just going to continue to make sure that we're doing so with a thoughtful business lens. Could you walk us through how you might onboard a family and what that might look like? So the first is really just getting to understand the client. What are their goals? Where are they coming from? Why did that work or not work? What does that engagement model really look like for them? What are they looking to achieve? As a business, equally understanding, well, what is it going to take for us to get to those goals? Because both of those things matter in the family space. And so we'll spend a lot of time with the client prior to any investment management agreement, really understanding their portfolio, understanding their entity structure, looking at their legal documents, understanding who pays taxes where, working with them to understand their reporting requirements. Some of our clients own assets in multiple different structures. Some of them, those structures have distributions that go back to different members of the family. How do you make sure you're reporting on that? How are you making sure that you're tracking that and making sure those distributions actually get executed? Having meetings with their state attorneys, having meetings with their tax accountants, potential auditors, if it's a foundation, really understanding their intermediary needs and what reporting information they need to receive in order for them to do their job. We're a multifamily office, but in many ways for the family, it has to behave like a single family office. They have so many different people as a part of their workflow. I mean, I've had times where I've spoken to a ranch manager in my life. Did I ever think that I would ever speak with a ranch manager? But we needed data and they needed data. And so that was a good learning experience. I know a lot about ranches in Montana now. Site visit. I did suggest it didn't go over, but (laughs) that's part of our onboarding experience before we even get to the daily work. And in this particular case, how many custodians or brokerage accounts are you grappling with? We're probably up to 20 now. That you know of? That we know of. (laughs) It is unique. And in terms of the fact that we do not enforce a standardized custodian, a lot of our peers that we talk to you know on a regular basis to get great ideas from tend to have one idea service provider that they prefer for their investment portfolio but what we have found is that our clients really have those relationships they might be long standing they might have been inherited and so we want to pay that respect and also utilize those firms for what they may be able to provide to those clients separately from our mandate. And the great thing about technology is being able to source that data. Part of our requirements for utilizing a variety of custodians to get custodial data feeds. If we can see the data, if we can access the data, if we can help move cash back and forth, either through direct discretion or indirect discretion, we'll make sure that we are reporting those values and working with those third parties. And in the wake of smaller banking crisis, when a lot of clients said, oh, I want to move cash I have too much cash in one spot. That was something easy for us to do. And we did work with a lot of clients at making sure that cash was held where they felt comfortable from a risk perspective. And once you present that, does that create discussion around governance? Oh, yeah. We are constantly thinking with our clients about how they want to make decisions, who should be making decisions on the portfolio, 
how they want to involve their children, when and how do we get them educated to the extent that they're not in the day-to-day, and how do we ensure that we're cultivating a relationship with that next generation so that we can also maintain what we built for that family as a whole. We can be that helpful hand as they go through life changes and events. When and how to get involved tends to differ by family. But we have found that as the next generation tends to get married and reaches their late 20s, early 30s, there's a lot of discussion about how to get them educated and involved in a thoughtful way. And the way that they receive information is very different than our typical client, matriarch or patriarch. We have to be thoughtful about that as well. And what about cross-generational? So if you have two siblings that are at the top of the house, do you end up spinning that off and creating separate portfolios or playing to two masters, for lack of a better term? We have seen it both ways. It depends a lot on the relationship as you're building out these structures. It's idealistic a lot of times to build everything all in-house together as one. You have more purchasing power. You can take advantage of a lot of the simplicity. At the same time, when you're thinking of, let's just say, two siblings, it's really not two siblings because those siblings get married. There's four. They may get a divorce. So there might be five. There might be six. One has two children. One has three children. When do they come into play? And so we tend to see a mixture of families who work together because their balance sheet is large enough that they can spend separately, but maintain the nucleus of their family. And then we have other families who say, you know what, I want to invest differently and needing to get my sister sign off on everything I do or my brother sign off on everything I do just doesn't work for me. And we'll work on that disaggregation and working with the managers to the extent it makes sense, separate portfolios. We have some clients who own assets together and we'll work with them to display the assets separately. And so that's a workflow that we also will go through to see so that they really understand where they are, even though they're part of a broader mandate. A lot of family dynamics come into play in terms of how they want to manage those assets, whether they want to manage it together or manage it separately, but we can display both. And do you have to go through the exercise of documenting that investment process or flow or governance piece to cross-communicate, this is what we've agreed to? Yes. We document everything. So to the extent we have a full power of attorney, we can effectuate change on our own. We will always go to clients before we put them in an investment decision, but we may be able to move forward on mandates just on a more simplified basis by our own internal signature process. The bulk of our mandates are what we consider to be non-discretionary. So we might have a limited power of attorney, but we're not the investment decision makers. And so we do make sure that we understand and have client meeting notes and follow-ups after every meeting of this is what we discussed, this is what occurred. This was the decisions that were made. These are still the decisions outstanding. So there's a constant tracking. Our client relationship management team really takes a lead there of where do we stand on some of the decisions that have to be made? And then also working with the families to the extent the decision has to be made in a quicker fashion. So if you want to redeem by your end, you need to let us know today. And so making sure that that communication is very clear and our thoughts and our advice while also being respectful of how they choose to make decisions. You hinted at this earlier. I'd love to talk a little bit about the next generation and how that is changing client service. It is a big shift. I think it's a very different engagement model. I don't know if 
the sit down discussion, 75 page deck and depth conversation once a quarter is really how the next generation will consume information. These people have grown up on the internet, on Google, getting fast information quickly. Prior, our clients weren't super focused on a portal. They met with us. They knew where things stood. They understood information as we gave it to them. They appreciated the hard documentation, the customization. A lot of next generation, they want to be able to do it themselves. They need to fund a flow. I want to click the button and be able to fund the flow. They want easy access. They want to do things quickly. They want things that are digestible, but scalable and has flexibility that's intuitive. So a really complicated infrastructure that's just put into the web is not helpful to them. If it's not intuitive, it's not going to be utilized. And so keeping things flexible, but also thoughtfully brief is really important as we engage that next generation. So that's a big mandate of ours that we've been focused on and thinking about how do we get information to our clients at the palm of their hand. I even feel like the iPad feels outdated to them now. It's like, if it's not on mobile and they can't just do it on their phone, they don't want it. It's hard to put the genie back in the bottle on reporting, but are you seeing a trend towards more thin layer reporting? I think if that's where we'll end up heading, and I think that the question mark is what information do clients need to be able to make decisions? Now, I think for a long time in this space, we've been super focused on just getting data in a system. You need an IRR, here's your IRR. You need an exposure analysis, this is your exposure analysis. And now we're really moving towards how do you make a decision with all that information? There's so much data. There's so much information. So what's the decision? How did we get there? How do we make those decisions? And how do we access making those decisions very, very quickly? And so I always think of something simple, but like a DocuSign. It's like, I just want to know where to sign, especially if it's something that people like, I'm not going to read the whole Apple agreement. I just want to know where to sign. There are people who want to be able to read the long text and the whole document as they should. And then there are going to be people who just want to sign and want to click the button. And how do you give them both? And what about estate planning matters? There's a lot of movement in the digitization of that. Are you seeing that playing a component to the service you provide? We've actually just been recently engaging with a bunch of different tools on this question, which I had never done before. We met with, I think, Luminary two days ago. How do you take in all these legal documents and organize the information and then, again, effectuate decisions based on it? And it's such a combination of the portfolio and the tax implications and the beneficiaries and mapping all of that out and looking at a grant. Is that the right solution? Or looking at different kinds of structures and saying, how do we help make these decisions and work with the state planners to better evaluate the decisions they're making on behalf of the client as well. So it's not always easy to know where we step in and out. I think that we want to make sure, though, that the client is covered. And so looking at these tools in general to just simplify this data, which is so complicated, is kind of that next step. And we're seeing a lot of these tools coming into the space through text recognition software, through ChatGBT, through a lot of the newer tools that are out there in trying to take these data points and organize them to help make better decisions. Because the estate planning component is just as critical when we're thinking about how to invest in terms of our client goals. And so 
that has been a big focus point as we've been growing at our client team of them saying, well, how do I make decisions? It's great. I have all this investment data, but how do I know how it impacts my client from their structuring perspective? Um, and we've been in with FP Alpha. We've been meeting with a lot of really interesting tools who are kind of newer to the space to have that engagement that combine both investment information as well as legal and tax. What's FP Alpha? So they're another tool like that who are really focused on the legal structure and documentation. Who are your beneficiaries? How is your structure set up? Which, at least for me, we had never really thought of as like a technology solution. I think lawyers have always given us this. I see it all the time, this giant PDF of it's all in like four quadrants. Of, yeah, the Visio chart. Yes. Thank you for giving us the data. But how do we look at that from what it actually does to our portfolio? And how are we making sure that when things have adjusted, we're actually tracking that? Because they do adjust very often. If you just set up a new insurance trust, what is the structuring and where does it live? It's really taking it to that next step. One of the things I like that Luminary was showing me was just what happens in a life event? What happens if the patriarch passes? What is your tax? That's a when. Yeah. <laughs> and vice versa, what happens if the matriarch goes first? It's going from just getting data in a system to driving decisions. And how can we use technology to be those decision makers? I think what's always been is that there's been data warehouse, even when it was Excel, and then there's the team sitting there and pulling that data and manipulating it. And so can we use technology to really help move that forward? You had hinted at a lot of technology here. Any thoughts that you have on kind of where the puck is going on technology in the family office space? When I joined, everything was about keeping a one-stop shop system. The goal was these one-stop shop systems that were going to do all your investment work, all your reporting work, be your client portal, work with your clients and be a CRM and do all the problem solving all in one system. And I think that the family space recognized in the last few years that that just doesn't exist. Every family is different. Every allocator problem is different. Different tools have different successes, things that they're also limited by. And what we're seeing now in the future is that embrace of API, of how do we connect to each other in a thoughtful way that makes you feel like you're still in one system or is able to cross-share data in a way that's really thoughtfully built without having to merge the firms. You don't have to all by each other, you can work together thoughtfully with sharing certain data components where it makes your tools easier for the end user like myself to jump in and out. And I think that's where we're going to see the most dynamic change of the firms that are the first movers of embracing APIs. I think like an Adapar has been really great about that. They're very well known for their network. They didn't build XYZ in-house, but they found a really strong way to partner with another group. And that's a big focal point for us because we recognize we live and eat and breathe in some of our systems. And so it's unlikely from a cost perspective that will change, but we want to work with partners from a tech stack perspective that can help enhance where those technologies are limited. And we don't want to put that pressure like we used to on those technologies to be end all be all. We want them to really focus on what they do well which might be risk reporting or might be CRM, but it might not be that they can do everything. So if you're a closed system, it's going to be really hard to make it into the Lazard tech stack. It's really going to be tough for the future. Our families are too dynamic and the space, depending on the level of data consumption that you have and you need, 
requires it. It's just you can't answer these questions so simply when you have all these third parties who have different questions coming from different vantage points. You need to be able to ship that data dynamically and be able to display it dynamically. And what we have found over the years is that we have a few super users, but it's not enough as you're growing an organization when you want to have as many people in the tech stack as possible. They need to be able to consume it and they need to be able to have it be dynamic between the two systems and have it talk to each other thoughtfully. So you don't need just the one or two people in the back end to produce that data for you. I want to turn to those looking to get into the multifamily office space. What's your advice for somebody coming to market? Maybe their recent graduate or looking to just move out of wherever they are into the space of the multifamily office. I love it. It's holistic in a way that I did not find for myself in both the broker-dealer support side and the asset management, business management side. Because in family land, you're seeing everything. You will learn about legal structuring, tax, spending, gifting, foundations, mortgages, loans. You will be a jack-of-all-trade and a master of some. (laughs) If you're a person who thrives on change, it's a great space to work in. There's no daily routine. If you are someone who is eager to work on families and relationships and building that network, it's phenomenal. You meet really interesting people across the board, both our clients and their support and intermediaries. And you get kind of a really interesting lay of the land of how other institutions work, either directly or indirectly, to service those families. I think the best advice is to come in with a very flexible mindset and be someone who can be adaptable to change. If you are someone who says, I want to do my routine and I don't want to embrace a new technology or I don't want to embrace a new structure, it's probably not the right fit for you. And there are other places within finance where you can be successful. But within multifamily office, there's always an air of dynamic change and adjustments that I personally think we thrive on, but you have to have the right appetite for it. Any advice you have for operations-oriented people working with the investment founder or CIO in your case? I think it goes back to one of that earlier learning that I had from Goldman about the concept of reputational risk. And so if you have a successful founder, investment-oriented or otherwise, they need to understand that operations is a fundamental part to their reputation. We are part of the functional growth as a whole. And from my experience here at Truvo, having worked for when we were founded three investment partners, the two individuals that were added to the partnership prior to our Lazard acquisition was our chief financial officer and myself. So business development requires input from the whole life cycle. Even if we don't always speak the same language, it's important that we all have a voice because we're all trying to grow an organization. That being said, as an operations professional, there's a level of responsibility you have as you grow within your career. So you have to start at, I inputted the trade. And then you migrate to, should I be inputting the trade? And then you get to a part of your responsibility where you say, what is the cost of to my business of inputting that trade? And what is my margin of error? What are the potential process improvements that can be implemented? What is the cost of that implementation? What do I gain? What do I lose? And if you approach it that way to a founder, if you're able to identify those improvements and also equally honestly identify the risks, I think that leadership can definitely embrace 
and support you in driving decisions and change. If you live in a construct where you want to pretend like everything's 100%, it's going to be easy breezy and everyone's going to adapt to this change immediately. And you're not losing any things that you used to do when you did it manually and you come to your senior leadership like that, you're going to end up disappointing them because it's very rare that something's coming in and just completely changes everything and makes it easier. There's always 80-20. And so making sure that your investment founder and partner appreciates that 20%, but also trusts you that that 80% is worth that improvement is part of having that real engagement from both an ops perspective and an investment perspective. The founder at the end of the day wants to grow their business and you're a part of it. You're a big part of it. Danielle, this has been an awesome conversation. We tend to close with a couple questions. The first question I have is, what do you recommend to people in terms of books, Twitter, LinkedIn, anything that you recommend to people more often than not? We typically start when we bring individuals to the firm with a book by Angela Duckworth. It's called Grit. We're a little bit of that strong, tough love of how do you overcome challenges? How do you overcome obstacles? We find that to be a good book. I always recommend, especially to a lot of the women on my team, Lean In, because I am a big supporter of this women empowerment and opportunity for growth and thinking strategically. And so those are usually the two we start with in terms of our reading. But most of the time what I'm reading is terrible trash novels of different stories about whatever's on the New York Times bestseller for women nearing their 40s. So those aren't typically what I'd recommend, but that tends to be what I read, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) And the other question I have is like any advice for people in your seat who are looking to adopt technology throughout an organization? I think it's really important to appreciate and understand where they are today and how they're looking to grow. Depending on who you're going to be engaging with when you're first initially discussing a a relationship with the technology, if you're speaking to a salesperson, they're looking to sell. It's really important to also get feedback from their engineering team or understand their partnership dynamic. Who actually runs the firm? How are they growing? Are they growing in alignment with you and their stage of the life cycle and viewing yourself as kind of a partner with that? Because it's not going to be 100% and that's okay. It doesn't mean that you can't help develop with them if it's the right business model. I think that it's really important to work with technology groups who know their competitors. This is a big piece of advice. They need to understand what makes them different. There is a lot of technology out there and a lot of it looks pretty similar. And so why should I pick this tool and not another tool that looks basically the same? It might be those open APIs. It might be a cost variation. It might be a different approach to solving a problem. But making sure that the technology group also knows and is able to answer that is important because that means they really thoughtfully built out their business to solve a problem versus being something that just spun out of an in-house product because it worked really well at this bank, which you do see from time to time. I think making sure you have the appropriate buy-in is critical. It can't just be that you're going to build a technology for the investment team and you're not meeting with the investment team. And that buy-in really will help you when you have to start doing the hard work of enforcement. And that is something that is a consistent struggle where you build really thoughtful technology and then you don't enforce it. And data is only as good as data in. And so it's very easy for people to stay within the lines of 
what they're used to doing. Even if what they hate what they're used to doing, they're comfortable. They know Excel and they love it. There are needs versus want and mapping that out. We do a gap analysis before every technology initiative. What are we getting and what are we going to lose? And that might be okay as we're thinking about longer term growth, or even if it's not a loss, but what is it going to take to implement? Someone tells you three months is probably six. What staffing do you have at your firm in order to actually do the implementation, which can sometimes be a struggle? You've had issues with that in the past and making sure that there's real partnership there as you're adapting that technology, because it's dynamic. They're not going to solve everything. How does that impact resource allocation or additional services? So when you apply a new technology, do you think about recalibrating human capital resourcing on that new technology stack? For sure. There's always going to be a need to review and understand how a technology works and get adapted before you're fully in utilization mode. And depending on the complexity of the technology, that could take a month, that could take a year, that could take more than a year, depending on what you're trying to achieve. And so we kind of approach it as part of the growth opportunity of that operations individual. So the way that we're structured is that if you're an analyst who joins this team, again, your primary role is to service clients. But there's really two career paths that we see for you that we've tried to earmark. There's a traditional client relationship management role, if that's your goal and what you're looking to do for your career. And then there's this other seat, which is my seat. You can be someone who's really an operational business manager. So you're not just executing work, but your job is to look at that work and say, can I do this better? And if I'm going to do it better, how can we do it better? I think that career path is really critical in understanding how things get done, but how things can improve. And we combine those roles. A lot of times at other firms, they might sit within the technology space, and that just might be a technology project manager, but they're not living the problem. We live the problem. My observation is that add to staff that you mentioned is often not done. Why do people overlook that important piece? It's the mentality of it should be a button. My head of risk and I always talk about like, can't you just click the button and it produces this? The button doesn't exist. I wish it did, but it doesn't. And you have to build the button and that's okay. And I think it's amazing that people are so fearful of hiring for the role. It's just making sure that you have someone who's eager to learn and who has organizational skills and wants to do that work. That's also, I think, part of the challenge is what we have found over the years is that a lot of people hire people for positions like a client relationship manager role, and then they're doing subdocs half the time, and they don't really want to be doing that. And so they're going to move on to a different role, and then you have turnover. And so if you're hiring people and you say, this is your role, and here's your growth path, and we've mapped it for you, and it's yours for the taking if you want it, And you can learn a ton, but you may not be the person deciding if you're putting a stock in a portfolio, but you get to be a part of all of those decision-making. And if that excites you of thinking about how to implement change, then it's a great role. And then again, this is a skill set. It's just a different type of skill set. And so sometimes it seems like it should be a click of a button or it should be really easy. This should not be complicated. But we have found that usually when you do one step forward, you kind of get two steps back and you have to kind of readjust and reshift, or maybe it's not as easy as you initially thought. 
it's almost recalibrating your workflow to accommodate what you can and can't do with the people that you have. And maybe you need an additional person in a seat to complete that feedback loop. When I started at Goldman, one of the managing directors said in one of our training sessions, your goal is to work yourself out of a job. That's your goal in operations. You want to make sure that you're building as much process and improvement in technology as possible. And then if you're really good at that, you're going to get another opportunity in another piece of the business and be able to do something similar. It is a really functional career, but you do have to hire for it. It is dynamic where if you hire really well, that person's going to be gone in two years. If they're hungry. If they're hungry. And that's okay. We talked about it before we were going to start at the partnership level that we want to build these individuals up in a way that if their goal is to migrate into something new, that's okay. This can be a two-year job if that's not your career. We also have members of my team who've been at the firm for seven years, nine years. And so we equally want to be able to give them a path within the space if they want to take more managerial responsibility, take more leadership and training opportunities. And the greatest part about now being a part of Lazard, which again was part of the Goldman culture, is that if you're talented, we're a bigger institution. There are other places within this organization that you can fit yourself into if it's the right opportunity set. I'd selfishly love to keep people, but I'm realistic enough to know that this is not everybody's goal and function, and that's okay. That's why we hire someone out of school because they have that eagerness. And if after two, three years, they're like, I'm less eager about this work. Okay. That's what you learned. But we try really thoughtfully to make sure that if individuals want exposure to other areas of the firm, that they get those opportunities to learn. We'll have members of our team join the investment team meeting. If they're interested in what's going on in the investment space, we have members of our team who, again, functionally are responsible for clients, but work with me on operational due diligence because they're interested in learning about the managers. And then we have a number of individuals who are really thoughtful and strategic as they approach project management and technology innovation. And how do we get all these things together? And then how do we also get information out to the broader Lazard environment? Because we want to make sure that we're reporting our information appropriately there as well. So it's a lot of opportunities within a role that seems like it should just be click and press. You have to like puzzles. You can't get frustrated when the dots don't always connect. You want to be someone who wants to problem solve and find that missing puzzle piece. Never a shortage of puzzles in this space. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) I learned a lot about the family office space and it was good to spend some time with you today. Thank you so much, Scott, for having me. This is great. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time.